0: Welcome to the Home Lab Show, Episode Twenty Six Q and A with Jay. So, hi there. Yeah, the uh, Q and A episode. uh, There's enough Q and A. We wanted to talk about a few things. And this is also, this is the loop of stuff. When we do this Q&A, we get ideas from you of the things uh, that will be talked about on some of the next episodes. And there's been some of this fun stuff. And we have some questions for people who submitted already, uh, some Twitter questions that were submitted to us. And then uh, we will address the live show, people who are joining us here in the audience. So, yeah, we we like your questions and we have answers and suggestions. And uh, it's funny because I realize we're like... 30 or 40 seconds late starting the live stream here because we are started hashing out questions that came in just before, <laughs> just yep. before this started. Um, but we want to dive into these topics. But before we can, we have to thank a sponsor of the show, and that is Linode. And uh there's gonna be some Linode uh, answers to some of the questions that were asked here about some cloud stuff later in the Q and a yep. episode. But for now, if you've downloaded this podcast, you've downloaded it from Linode because that's where all this infrastructure that runs this show is hosted.
1: Yep. And and all use, TV, yep is yeah. also on there too. I pretty much, you know, actually every server, the community forums, the main website, Um, a bunch of servers that nobody even knows I have because I have like probably 10 or 15 Linode instances. Some are just not even publicly available. It's just a really fantastic service. And I love it.
0: Yeah. The uh, whole thing is kind of fun because it's, it's an addiction. You're like, Oh, I can just build another server for that. And another server for that, you know, first you start with the Raspberry Pi problem that Jay has. And I'm not sure besides the ones in Iraq, Jay has a collection of Raspberry Pis. But then you go, you know, I can spin up just as many cloud servers with Linode and, she has now done that as well. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I mean, it's really, it's really great for me, not only because of the infrastructure, but sometimes when I want to do a tutorial, I mean, if I'm already logged into Linode, I'll just create a Debian or Ubuntu instance and I'll just do the tutorial. Or, or I mean, obviously I could use a server that you gave me, but sometimes it's just like click a button, Ubuntu, Debian, got it. You know, I do the tutorial, then I delete it. And then I pay pennies because I, I you know, hasn't even been up a full 24 hours. So. Yeah, and that's actually a really cool thing.
0: Um, they also have the pre-built servers, which are really cool in Linode. I definitely like that as an option uh, when you're setting them up because I wanted to test something and I was like, I, I don't want to, I, I, cool, there's instructions how to load this, but I'd like to do this one click and uh, the app store is really cool for that.
1: Yep. Lots so. of fun stuff to try out there, even next cloud. Yeah, even Nextcloud.
0: you want to spin up an instance, Uh, great, get it working, and then poke at it, reverse engineer it, then delete it, and uh, start over and learn it from scratch. And to do all of that, if you follow our offer code, uh, Linode will give you $100 in credit to get started and playing with NextCloud or whatever other many tools that we've talked about on here. Uh, And, you know, you didn't choose to do an SSH video, build a a Linode server and test it with SSH uh, and it's an easy way to do it.
1: So if you guys are watching this on YouTube or, or wherever, just let us know what you're using your Linode servers for. Um, brownie points for the most clever ideas. I want to definitely yeah. see if you guys are up to. Oh, yeah, leave that in the comments. That would be really cool. So thanks, Linode,
0: for sponsoring the show. And let's jump into the Q&A. So
1: yep. what was the first question we have today, Jay? That was the one, um, if we're going through the Q&A submissions through the website about uh, Net server.
0: Yeah, so this is an interesting project, and it's not the first one. NethServer N E T H, right? Uh NethServer.com. Um, someone asked us about this. Now there's been oh, over me, sorry. yeah, there's been over time uh, lots of these all in one Uh, linux servers that are pre-packaged the one that's more famous to me that is very similar uh, and it is actually backed by hewlett-packard now which is uh, interesting i believe they give you some type of discount if you buy hewlett-packard servers but they're all in one linux systems that are supposed to replace and they're really modeled in my opinion after if For those of you that have worked in IT for a while, the Microsoft small business server packages where Microsoft would do this all in one server that has all these features you need in one place for email and firewall and uh, centralized management of all the users. And when you create a user in here, it creates them in all the other parts of this. So it'll create a file share, a home directory, a mailbox for that user. These are kind of neat uh, but support for these projects, there's been a lot more of them besides Clear OS that's supported by HP. Uh, Nest Server is just one I heard about recently because someone suggested it to me. But I'm always a little leery of their integration because it's they're packing a whole lot in there, and depending on how their business model is, will they be able to support this long term? And right. is it? Is it a viable product that you'll actually get support proper updates and packages for to keep it all secure? It's kind of nice because it's turnkey and you don't have to learn how to integrate the products together. But that other side of it is that is a very complicated thing to maintain. And you're talking about something that also is advertising. It should be on the perimeter of your security, as in it should have your mail and firewall is one of the suggestions in here. Uh, That means if there's a flaw in one of these pieces, it can be very problematic for you because it's all in one device. The concept all in one device is exciting, but has to be done with a very high level of support and security uh, to make it viable. So I don't really have time to review those type of servers because I I can load them and I'm sure it works as advertised because they said there was a lack of tutorials on there. But uh, you won't find enough people running it in production, or I wouldn't be willing to put this in production uh, with enough confidence to really do a solid review on it. So you'll probably just have to rely on your documentation for reviews. But uh, me and G are skeptical of this. I think G's gonna share yeah. some thoughts on skepticism on this too.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on this. I mean, I, I, on one hand, I can understand a turnkey solution because sometimes, you know, especially if you're working on building a bunch of servers and you have yet another project that's landing. Then, yeah, if you could just get that project done real quick with a turnkey solution, I could see the appeal there. But also, I feel like we're creating the same problem that we have with Windows, because this reminds me of the server manager in Windows, where you have this console that comes up, you just check the boxes, you want Active Directory, you want DNS, whatever it is. Um, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but it's just like, it's an all-in-one. We don't know how Windows Server works under the hood. To be fair, we could probably dive in and find out how it works under the hood in terms of Net Server, but... It's still they try to abstract that from people. And it's also not a audience fit, at least for the majority of our audiences, because our audi- our uh, excuse me, audiences generally want to know, how does it work? How do you set it up? And if it's a turnkey solution, that's, that doesn't really translate to a video because it's just, here's the installation process and a review. It does the rest for you under the hood. So there's really not much to talk about. It's not really exciting content. But then, as you mentioned, um, it's an all-in-one <clears> solution, which is a benefit, but that's also a con. Because if someone gets into it, they have everything. I think it'd be be kind of interesting to, um, you know, obviously check the terms and conditions about whatever platform you're using, but just make it like a honeypot. Just make it publicly available, completely segregated from everything else. Just see what happens, right? Does someone get in? Do they completely own the whole thing? It'd be great as a honeypot, if nothing else. Well, and and this goes back to anytime they build an appliance-based solution,
0: you are also really restricted to the designer of the compliance and how they want you to implement things. I bring this up for TrueNAS. I've had people say, Well, I don't like the way TrueNAS doesn't let me do these really advanced specific ZFS things that I need to do. And I'm like, Then why would you use TrueNAS if you need to do something that goes outside of that? Same thing goes with PFSense. You absolutely can build your own firewall on BSD and not use PFSense. And I've had people tell me they want to just control it all from the command line and not use the whole UI that's provided by PFSense. And if you try to modify things from the command line and bypass, the way it was, the package was designed, both on the TrueNAS versions or the uh, firewall by PFSense, both of those run into the same problem that because these are packaged OSs, you are restricted to use it the way they intended. That gets amplified dramatically when you build something like one of these all-in-one servers because there's a lot of pieces. So if you were to touch and modify something in Samba, the automatic user creation process may not work properly or the way you want. So if it, Right. Fits the need for you top to bottom as is, and you don't plan to go to the command line. Uh, that's probably a good thing, and you can possibly use it, but these are the considerations you should have going into it. And I've actually serviced a couple clear systems that seem to be popular with a few school districts. Uh, We did some contract consulting work. Uh, The updates broke a bunch of permissions, and because this was actually kind of to Jay's thing about how you don't know how it works, uh, they were saving money on Windows licenses, they thought by using it. They ended up spending a lot of time because no one knew how to go into a command line or SSH into it to actually fix any permissions. They were very lost on it, and when update broke the permissions. There was no way to do like recursive uh, permissions all the way through. It actually it was weird when the update made it create new users. So I had to reassign a bunch of users and home directories to unlock a bunch of files. Um, the update just didn't go well. And the support people weren't very support oriented is why they ended up calling us on it. Um, even though they are, had a paid license for it, um, they, they support people because they we don't know what's wrong. I realized it was just reassigning users in the wrong way. I was able to fix it for the command line recursively, uh, change all the permissions and get it up and running for them in a functional way. But interesting nonetheless. Just those are our total thoughts on that. Because um, it is a question on positive will come up many more times.
1: <laughs> yeah. Another thought I had too is I, I start to think about the home lab audience specifically. And there's several different reasons why someone creates a home lab. It could be because they don't trust Google or whatever. They want to roll their own solutions. It might be because they you know, want to learn how to do this stuff, how to build things manually. And you know, that's a great learning experience. I kind of feel, in my opinion, let me know if you agree or disagree, that the majority of the home lab audience, a large percentage, seems to be the people that want to learn and do this stuff on their own and find out how these moving pieces work. And I feel like something like NetServer kind of takes that away from people because then it's abstracting things and they're not really learning as much. So I kind of feel like for that particular audience, it's just probably not going to be something that would be up their alley.
0: Yeah. So those are a good point, too. Uh, If you're into the nuts and bolts of things, this probably isn't for you. Um, The next question was about syncing and true NAS scale. Yep. So
1: uh, let's see. So I had some thoughts on that too, actually, unless you were just about to say something, there might be an audio in the way. Sorry. So, I mean, it seems to me like the the question is kind of like, where do you install SyncThing? And I think that this is one of those things that can be, um, you know, it's it's something like you're given this tool and it's really awesome. Okay, but where do I put it? You know, where do I install it? And anytime I go over SyncThing, I talk about the, um, you know, SyncThing's in the middle and all the other nodes connect to it. But what in the middle do you install it on? Now, personally right now, I have it on TrueNAS as a jail, the the built-in plugin system. I'm probably going to take it out of that at some point, but spoiler alert, Tom and I are gonna be working on a little project here. So honestly, that might go a completely different direction. But one thing that I often um, get annoyed by is that when you have these jails or these plugins for any solution, it's not just TrueNAS, is it maintained? Is it updated? Maybe, maybe not. You could have all your nodes on a very new version of SyncThing, but the main server in the middle is on a very old version. So one suggestion is to run it, you know, run your your master SyncThing node as as a VM. Now, hold on a minute. That takes away from TrueNAS and the versioning and all that. Um, But actually it doesn't if you really think about it. Because you can set up a virtual machine that just runs SyncThing and has almost no storage. But if you have an NFS share on your NAS and your NFS has versioning, then you could actually have your sync thing data on the NAS and use something like AutoFS to ensure that that volume is always mounted. Now sync thing has built in protection. So there's some file that it creates, I forgot the name of it. And if it doesn't see that file in the share, it assumes that everything went wrong and it won't sync. And the reason why that is, is because if you have a mounted uh, file system and for whatever reason, it doesn't get mounted, then you essentially have an empty directory and you certainly don't want an empty directory to sync back to all your other nodes. So sync thing is smart enough to say, hold on, there's a file that's supposed to be here that I created, it's not there now, so I'm not going to sync, you need to fix this. So that kind of protects you. But AutoFS will keep it mounted and then you could still benefit from TrueNAS ZFS, you know, snapshots and things like that. That's a great way to do it. Um, but depending on how our project goes that's, that we're working on next week, I might actually use the TrueNAS Scale version so I think, and at least on my end, I'm going to have more to say about that in the near yeah. future. And and to add to that, one of the videos I've done is instead of using
0: the repository of the jail and relying on the version they install of Sync thing, I have a... Another video where I talk about how to manually build the jail and then load SyncThing within it. One of the Mm -hmm. cool things about SyncThing is it has its own update mechanism. So if you load it manually and enable the update mechanism, which I have a tutorial on, um, that means SyncThing will always be the latest version and the jail is independent because you're just using the standard base BSD jail and you don't really have to install much in it because a sync thing is uh, self-contained it doesn't need mm-hmm. a proxy in front of it it doesn't need um, anything else so you can build this very minimal jail with the minimal amount of services in it and then load up that and then you map your storage in now these are both with uh, the way Jay said it the way I said it are valid design methodologies depending on how you want to achieve things um, to me it's a very lightweight way of doing it and then Jay's going to have to show me this is part of the reason me and Jay are collaborating because Tom has a knowledge gap on uh, how to map storage very well in Kubernetes and Docker so when we move over to TrueNAS scale I want to be able to repeat that same engineering of sync thing that I know how to do in FreeBSD uh, to make sure I understand the proper way to do it in map storage so that's why Jay's uh, Jay is very familiar with Kubernetes, Docker and storage mapping so um, and that's the basis that is based on TrueNAS scale so when we do these conversions which is going to be a series, upcoming yep. series of videos, and me and Jay will physically be hanging out and doing this uh, to yep. get it all right. Um, we'll, we'll have other opinions coming on, on that of how to do it in that other environment.
1: I think that's actually the heart and soul of what I love about Homelab. I think it's the heart, heart and soul of Homelab itself, where you have a solution that you want to run, and there's all these different ways that you can run it and different configurations and layouts and such, that you could just use your creativity. What's the mo- what's the easiest, the best, the fastest? You can experiment. You can just tear it all down, build it a different way, see how it reacts there. And I think that's kind of what helps us learn these things because with HomeLab, we have essentially an almost like enterprise network, but we don't have a bunch of users that are using it that are going to get mad at us if we break it. We'll break it on purpose, fix it, repair it, move it on a different server, maybe create it as a virtual machine, compare it to a jail. Um, this is what makes this stuff fun for me.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, now,
0: speaking of fun, one of the fun things we have to do is vet projects. First, you discover them on uh, just a ton of different places, either from audience suggestions or people on Twitter suggest a project. I find it in literally Reddit, our home lab, or uh, Reddit, open source, or anywhere you can find open source projects. Stumble across it from a GitHub. Uh, but there are so many projects out there. How do you decide which project is the one is you should go with? And I I know I'll start with, I always look at the security aspects of it, but Jay probably has a little bit more in depth answer on, on this. He thinks a lot about this, this was a good discussion we had last night that we want to bring to you.
1: Yeah. The selection process is really hard for, for content to be honest, because there's all these different avenues that I have to think about. And, um, One of the main things is that I don't wanna, I don't really wanna make content that's being played in an echo chamber. I want people, I want a lot of, I want it to benefit a lot of people. I like it when people tell me, you know, this video was really helpful, thank you, this was great. But if I make a video that, you know, only a few people are really interested in, I mean, it's great that I help those few people, but the amount of time I put into a video, I just wanna know that there's a demand for it. And sometimes it's a gamble. Sometimes I'll just make a video And I don't even know if there's a demand for it, but I'm about to find out. And, you know, some of that pays off and some of it doesn't. So trying to predict what's popular and what's not is a rabbit hole in and of itself. A lot of times um, it, it goes along with difficulty. So I have to have a certain variance of difficult videos to record and easy ones. If I do only the difficult ones, then the content slows down to a crawl because a difficult video could take me three or four days to do. Um, as an example, the easier videos, like yesterday, I recorded six videos in one sitting because it was like six things I knew about off the top of my head. Like, oh, my gosh, I didn't even go over this yet. I really need to make content about this. And I just sat down, recorded six videos. We're done. But then um, I did a video and I just finished it for Metal as a Service, Mass. Older, and it took me a week to finish. So um, it really depends on the timeline of how difficult it is. And I don't want to pick only the easy ones. So I, I do a, like one hard video, a couple easy ones. They have a variance there. Another thing too, is if I'm already using the product, it's really easy to do a video on it. And because I already know it, I already use it. But then again, it goes down to the audience, what they want, what they're looking for, what's of value to them. And I try to have a balance of um, not making it too hard on myself, but also making things that people want to see. I think that's generally my process. So there's not much of a process necessarily, but it's just this thought process I go through every time someone suggests a video, you should do a video about X. I think about, okay, what would that be like? How many people are going to like that video potentially? And um, how long is this going to take me? Does it fit into my schedule? And then there's like this planning process that I go through at the beginning of every month where I plan out the videos for that month. There's it's, it's still not the easiest process. That's no. <laughs> I guess I could summarize it too long. Didn't read or whatever. It's, it's not much of a process. It's just a thought process that kind of goes over and over and over again where I decide things. And sometimes my decision to do a video is down to impulse. Like I just discovered something so awesome. I can't stop thinking about this because it's so amazing. I need to do a video about this right now. The fate of the world depends on this video. If I don't do it, I, you know, it's a bad thing. Okay. I'm being overly dramatic, but but basically I get very (laughs) excited about it. And then I feel like, well, I got to do a video on it because I'm not going to be able to stop thinking about it until I do it. Because sometimes I'll hyper-focus on a particular topic.
0: Yes, that is definitely the over-focus, over-obsess. That's me and G both suffer from that. We get, we dive deep and just take some time and dive like days into it. That's how my like WireGuard and things like that. When I chose to do uh, my how to build your own WireGuard server, that's a lot of learning. I just sat down and crammed for two days and made sure I understood everything WireGuard so I could simplify it into a not two day long video. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's the eternal struggle, right? Um, we love making content, and I, I feel like you're probably the same way. When I say I want to do videos on everything, <laughs> there's yeah. there's I want everything. I want to do like uh, two thousand videos on all the things I care about. But honestly, there's only 24 hours in a day. I'm only awake for you know a little less than half of that. So yeah. uh, unfortunately, there's some videos that I really, really, really want to do, but when I order them in terms of preference they kind of, they're lower on the list. And then I think this metal as a service video took me about a year to get to it. Honestly, it's been on my list for a year.
0: Yeah. So. All right. Next question is, Hey guys, love the podcast. I am a new to home lab and been learning a lot. I bought a new house. and want to start building my own home lab. I am struggling, but if I could build my own servers or I should get a pre-build like Synology um, build it or buy it is the uh, eternal question. And the answer sometimes is both. And what I mean by that is uh, maybe if you don't know where to start at all, starting with Synology is nice because you'll get – further faster because it's very turnkey offers quite a few services and then from there you'll decide whether or not you outgrow it you want to get more into the nuts and bolts of things and right. you go you know the Synology now is not as flexible it offers a lot of pre-done applications that I can just turn on and use like Synology photo and it's awesome it works but I want to build my own I want to learn Samba I want to learn how to build shares in a more manual way um, you can build virtual machines inside Synology so it still offers you that extra flexibility um, but I would probably start there because there's also nothing more disappointing than buying some used server and not understanding how to even load it, not having the time to load it and having a real lack of sense of accomplishment because you're going I don't even know how to get this thing turned on yet. So I don't know where you are in your skill set but I don't see a problem with in, in having both of them. And I have both devices here. We do a series of Synology videos. They're always weird for me to do because they're so much less complicated. My Synology videos I almost feel like when I make them even 20 minutes long i'm like i'm not even sure how to make them 20 minutes long so much of this is very very turnkey which is nice versus right. some of the more complex projects it's trying to figure out how to make them less than an hour long um but either way i, I think both are valid both have a strong use case and it comes down to ultimately where your goal is and we don't know where your goal is um, or you're an unsure of yourself technically starting out with a blank server can leave you with a Uh, screw this, I'm not going to do this anymore because this was really hard and I don't feel a sense of accomplishment because I couldn't even get it to boot. (laughs) So I don't see any problem at all buying uh, something that's very turnkey Synology, um, especially because maybe you decide you don't care about the hardware and building things like that. Maybe you want to be a software developer uh, and then you just load some of those utilities onto the Synology and it's a great place to keep all your software and build things and you never care about functionally building the server from scratch.
1: I think that's the main, I think that's an important takeaway there because this is a very personal question, right? Because each of us, we have a home lab for a very different reason. If you are the type of person, you want to be a storage admin, you want to learn all about iSCSI, all about NAS, all about those different things, then you absolutely should build your own, you know, because you want to learn how those things work. But if you just gauge your interest level, for example, if you are all about virtualization, but you really don't care about storage, you just kind of think of it as a means to an end. You just need somewhere to store things, but you want to get that VMware certification or you want to learn Proxmox, XCPNG, e, then you should focus on the virtual machines and then just get a you know turnkey solution for the storage if that's not something that you care to learn. Um, so if you really um, look at the interest level that you have, you'll find that some things you really want to learn, those are the things you should do more manually. And the things that you don't care about then you're not going to dive into those things. Now, me, for example, I really don't care for databases. Now, uh, database admins, they make a lot of money. Um, let's just say that. And there's a, a, a really important skill to have there. But for me, a database server is a means to an end. For me, I just want to know how to secure it, the best practices for how to set it up so I don't do something silly and you know get it owned. But I don't really want to learn all about SQL and the structure of the databases. I just want a database. Give me a database and I'm going to focus on the other things. So when you're building a home lab, just think about the things that you find interesting and fun. And those are the things to focus on and just get turnkey solutions for the things that you really don't care about.
0: I learned I learned some uh, several different database languages years ago. A lot of information has fallen out of my head. I understand it, and I understand even better that I should pay someone else to do it.
1: <laughs> I, I learned that in in college. I took a database class actually as part of my degree, and that was the main thing I learned in that class. I don't want to work on databases.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I used to do um, what was it? The Windows, uh, the the was it Microsoft
1: Microsoft, Microsoft? SQL.
0: Uh, before SQL, they had their basic Microsoft DB system access. Uh, access. I learned Microsoft Access. Then I went into and learned a UNix one called uh, Progress. And um, I got good at doing progress queries. It's a really archaic. It's from the 80s and was still in use uh, in the manufacturing places that I worked. Um, so I did it. but yeah, that information's kind of fallen out of my head since then. I don't I understand functionally how to do it. Um, but I, I can muddle my way through my sequel, but like, like you said, it's, I don't have a passion for it. So I kind of outsource that. Um, now this is not something we have on the roadmap right now because me and Jay both scratched our head at this question a little bit of what's the great Google photos alternative Synology photos is the easy answer and I've done testing with it. I'm still testing with the new version of it. So I'll have an upcoming video on that, but all these other uh, companies out there trying to do something that's similar to Google photos I haven't I've looked at them very briefly not in depth I didn't feel through my brief looking at them that any of them were up to actually being a replacement Google photos is um, just uh, set aside any privacy concerns or things you may feel about Google is a really feature complete product and it's a very hard to say what's a Google photos competitor because Boy, that's not an easy task, especially when you talk about the indexing and object recognition. Now, go back to you want to self-host something like that. Well, that gets a little bit tricky as well, and it's something I will eventually look at after I'm done looking at Synology Photos as I'm doing a longer-term review of Synology Photos. So I I actually switched to it. Uh, I still actually am simultaneously using uh, Google Photos for some things and Synology Photos for other things on there, including phone syncing and everything like that. So I am working on a long-term review of that specifically. But, of course, then someone's going to say, well, that's proprietary and tied to Synology. Yes, you have maintainership of all of your data with Synology Photos, which is nice. Um, but yes, it is a specific, you have to have a Synology uh, to do it. Um, the other people that asked about some sure of the names of them here, uh, one was called Liche Libre Photos, and I don't know how to say it, but go. I don't I could either. I don't know if that's right. I didn't Google uh, that one specifically, but I've looked at some of the other ones briefly and said, that looks cool. I don't know. Well, um, at some point, that may be a future topic. Me and Jay uh, will dive into. But at this point, there's nothing on roadmap because we don't know anything about them enough to say we do it. And also, like Jay said, and this is something that's true for me for most things. I can just dump photos that I don't care about indexing. Like, hey, here's my vacation photos. They're in a folder labeled vacation 2020 September that we, I, and I'm happy just to have them in a pile. I don't worry as much about tagging and indexing them. Uh, so sometimes, you know, it's not really a use case type thing, but I may dig into it because I know the question's popular and I, I, I get the premise of people wanting to index and organize them in a, in a more concise manner.
1: So on my end, um, it's pretty much what you said, but just to go into more detail, um, I under, first of all, I understand that my solution is going to miss out on a lot of the features that these solutions provide you with. But my solution works for me. So, some people may or may not know this, but inside your, I believe it's in the .dot config folder in your home directory. There's a direct, there's a file called user dirsdirs D-I-R-S. and inside there, it's where the session, it's where you tell your session where your folders are, like your desktop folder, documents, music, pictures, and whatnot. So, what I do on my end is I have AutoFS mount my pictures share from TrueNAS, and it keeps it mounted. And the user dirs.dirs folder, it's actually mapping the session pictures directory to the mounted directory. So when I click on the pictures um, directory in my home directory, it's actually going to my true NAS, even though it looks like it's in my home directory. And the reason why I did this is because I take a ginormous number of pictures. And it got to the point where anytime I sync pictures from machine to machine, because they used to have sync thing do this, it would take hours to get all the pictures um, downloaded. So they're already on the NAS and that's where I keep them. So anytime I click on my pictures folder, I get them and I have the folder arrangement like um, year and then, you know, month, day, and then the title of whatever it was like vacation photos or something like that. So I can get to them very easily. Now, obviously, you're going to miss out on like the object recognition and things like that. But um, one benefit—I don't know if it's a benefit—it's uh, actually kind of a detriment. I don't get out much nowadays, as I, th- I think most people don't. So normally, what I could do is just VPN in, and then I can get access to my pictures. Obviously, that's not going to help me share it with other people very easily. But for me, it works just fine. Um, but I could totally see that there's a use case for something that's easier, especially if you have family members you want to share your folder, your you know, your files with. But Um, this solution works for me. And maybe I might be interested to see what we come up with when we look at this topic, because maybe I'll, I'll change to that possibly.
0: Yeah. The um, there's, there's a lot of them out there and I want to address this uh, real quick. People think I was missaying, saying uh, Postgres. No, no, there is a, Data language for called Progress. Um, it's old, and I uh, there's a Wikipedia entry for it for that it started in 1981. So, yes, not Postgres. That is a different one. Uh, it is actually called Progress Software, and it was part of the basis uh, for some database stuff way off topic i won't get in there it was all run on ibm aix server yes i used to be an ibm aix server admin version back probably would have been on version four or so that i used to administer so yeah that's been a while so (laughs) you know maybe maybe there's some interest in it i'll uh tom will make some video i don't like to do videos are just like about me i like to train people on things but a lot of people do ask maybe if there's enough questions about it i'll do some type of like history of all the weird things tom did and worked on i don't i don't know if there's any relevance to it but i have no problem answering a question just don't know where to put that answer uh because it usually just gets asked in the comments (laughs) um what is the best way to vpn into a home lab with a dynamic ip address um oh boy
1: (laughs) that's the (laughs) right. uh
0: you know if you look inside of Uh, We'll use PFSense as an example, but there's plenty of other firewalls that have this built in, Uh, but PFSense offers connections to services like, is it no IP? And about a hundred others that it has in a long, long list. Whichever one works for you. There's plenty of those dynamic DNS services that will auto-update Azure IP it trains, so you can create, uh, you know, my custom DNS name. No, I think it's like noip.com. I haven't used one of those services in years, so I'm not endorsing that particular one. I just remember it because I remember using it forever ago. It may not even exist now. I think it's still on the list, but. Uh, there's a plenty of those type of dynamic DNS services out there that will dynamically change your DNS as your IP changes. That's the simple, easy uh, workaround. Someone suggested um, uh, Duck DNS, and there's, like I said, there's definitely plenty of them out there that offer that as a service.
1: There, There is, and um, that's an interesting question, too, because the next level of that question is, well, what if I want access to something from the outside? And how do I how do I name it? How do I map that? Now, one thing that I think is pretty cool in, in a recommendation of mine is to use C names. So if you own a domain, just buy a domain, 10 bucks or whatever they go for now, and you could actually create a C name for your dynamic DNS name. So if your dynamic DNS is like user one, two, seven, five, ten dot three at or, or dot duck DNS or whatever it is, you get this long um URL. You can just create a C name for it with your domain. So you could call it like vpn.mydomain.com and that just that's just a C name to your dy- dynamic DNS. And one benefit of that is if you change dynamic DNS providers, you just change the C name, you don't have to change your configs. But another benefit of that too is that if you want like NextCloud to be publicly available, I mean, you should probably not do that unless you really have to, but if you really want to make something publicly available, then it could be nextcloud.mydomain.com, which is also a C name to your dynamic DNS. And then on the front, front end of your network, you can have a proxy looking for, oh, the request is coming in for nextcloud.mydomain.com. I'm going to send that individual over to this server. So that way you can kind of abstract the dynamic DNS and not have this ridiculously long name that's hard to remember. And you could just come up with your own naming scheme by using CNAME. So that's another level you could take it to.
0: Yeah, that's um, absolutely Easy way to do it. And the one other thing I'll throw out there, and I've talked about this, is using an overlay network. A couple examples is going to be tail scale and zero tier when you don't want to even bother messing with the firewall or if you're in a worse position so to speak where you can't get a public ip address because you're behind carrier grade nat uh people who live for example in the northern areas of michigan that's generally how a lot of the isps have all moved to is cg nat so you're you don't even get to open up things in a public ip space that's where these other overlay networks are uh, another option to it's a, it's not yeah. exactly the answer to your question about how to deal with the dynamic DNS, but it's, how do you deal with that next problem of, I don't even get to have a public IP address. So that's, that's the thing. So yeah. <laughs> Um, I think that's the last we have on these questions. You see any more Jay, or can we move on to the one, one
1: more? Yeah. There's okay. one more, just like a clarification about, um, you know, my career move oh. because I mentioned in a previous episode that, I'm, I've um, decided to resign from my day job, and then my business becoming my only job. And of course, one reason for that is working two jobs is hard, and I'm losing energy as I get older. I don't really, I'm not a 20-year-old anymore. I can't really keep up with that. Um, so there's a couple of points that an individual brought up, and one of which was that, you know, that I gave up corporate management for YouTube, and I wanted to give a clarification there. Um, The YouTube side of things is is the side of my business that people see in the public. But behind the scenes, what a lot of people don't know is that there's a managed services thing that I'm working on. I do consulting for companies. So there's different revenue streams and the YouTube channel is just one of those. There's also book revenue, for example, as well. So it's not like... I just want to, you know, clarify, I'm not a full-time YouTuber, although I'm going to continue doing YouTube as much as I have been, several videos a week, that's not the primary thing. Um, and also when it comes to um giving up corporate IT or, or working in the corporate, technically I have my own company, so yeah, I own it, but I'm still kind of working in corporate IT. Like it's not a corporate company right now, but you know, I might be hiring people But what I thought about doing and what I think I will do, I think a lot of people will probably be happy to hear this, is I want to do some career development videos just where I talk about certain things. I had an individual reach out to me once and he asked me, you know, should I apply to this job at this company when I don't have all the qualifications? So I had a conversation with him. And let them know that, yeah, you should apply that. I've never seen anyone check all the boxes when they're hired. So there's all these different topics about, um, you know, job searching, uh, getting a job in IT, preparing for an interview and things like that. I've been through so many of these interviews. There's like nothing more for me to learn in in corporate management and IT. So now (laughs) it's time for me to give that information, you know, to the people that need it. And I think that's a, a better benefit for everyone than me just working for someone else.
0: Yeah, and I, and I announced uh, earlier. Well, not I think maybe a month ago. It's been a pro. It's been something that happened earlier this year, but was announced publicly on the channel not on ago, where I've dedicated more time as well because I used to work in corporate IT. We still have my business. I'm still physically uh physically legally is probably the better word Uh, physically i own this place that's not that's not tangible if it's legally i own this place uh and then i have brett running it so i can do the same thing like jay me and jay uh outside of this podcast me and jay obviously talk a lot because we do want to collaborate on a couple big ideas um I'll, I'll give you a little hint because I am do a video. Me and Jamie even do a video together on this. I don't know. Uh, we do have an idea to create an open source, very secure documentation server. So yep. uh, based on existing technologies, that's uh, the the thought process is still being uh, put together on that. So more news coming soon. Yeah. Um, on to the Twitter questions now. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, hybrid cloud, someone says, what do you think? And uh, one of the things is I have a hard time with a fuzzy question. So I did reply right away to, do you have a more specific question? And this more specific question is what features or benefits uh, would get people with home labs to try it out more? What do you think the biggest drawback is of hybrid cloud?
1: I'll let you take that one, Jay. A couple of, so there's a couple of things. I mean, one of the I think the hardest entry point for most people that I, I can see is like the hardware side of things. Cause they're like, you know, what do I buy? You know, what, what's the power usage? What model of server do I get? How much storage do I need? What, what about the Ram? How many servers do I need versus like having one server that's everything or having multiple servers that, you know, the services are spread out. But I feel like when it comes to hybrid cloud, you know, what do I think about it? I mean, I think it's a good idea depending on how it's implemented because I'm not of the train of thought that when you have a home lab, everything needs to be in your home lab. You're making a decision as far as what's going to be internalized and what you want to roll out on a cloud platform. So for example, you could have offsite backup on a Linode, for example, or a NextCloud server on a Linode, but you don't want your local network to be infiltrated so you have your more private things behind your NAT. Now, the biggest drawback of this is that it's pretty much always security because If you don't allow any of your servers to be publicly accessible, then unless there's a vulnerability in your router or something like that, um, you're reasonably protected. Obviously you should still have a firewall, still have backups. But if you put something in the cloud, then everyone is going to try to get into it. It's just the way it is. You have bot scanning for things, port scanning going on. Um, It's alarming at first when people look at the log files for your server. And... um, you see all these you know password failed attempts and things like that, oh my god i'm being I'm under attack. well, no, it's just business as usual. it's just um noise from the internet, but when you have have things in the cloud, you have to think about it in terms of okay well i'm I'm responsible for the security now, so you should set up a firewall, maybe something like fail to ban, just make sure your backups are good, and you don't have s s h open to the world and and preferably if you can get a, a you know get away with this, you can actually. Um, open a Linode to your home network, but not open it to the rest of the world. So even though it's in the cloud, it's still not publicly accessible. You can do that. So you have to kind of think about the architecture. I think when you start to have a hybrid cloud, then the the big picture gets even bigger because now you're trying to figure out how does my how do my internal resources connect to my external resource? What's the security of that? How is that mapped? What protocol do I use? Do I use zero tier or something else? Then you might you probably might need dynamic DNS. So at that point, the complexity gets bigger, but I think it also becomes a better learning curve too, because you get to make that decision. What do I want internal? What do I want external? And I think that's probably the best part of it. And sometimes there's a cost savings um, thing there too, because um, you don't have to pay a separate bill for Linode for their power. There's no power surcharge where it's like they add money on top of the device just to keep the lights on. I mean, you have a flat rate price, For your instance, whereas if you are in a very expensive power area, then honestly, it might actually be cheaper just to run on a Linode. It just depends on your situation. I think that's the core point here is just to make an intelligent decision as far as where you want things. And it really depends on your use case as far as whether or not that's a a good idea or an efficient idea.
0: Yeah. But we overall I mean we have a split workload ourselves here for different things. Okay. Uh it's not practical for me to run my forums based on the volume of hits they get uh anywhere else besides in the cloud. So my website yep. I don't host it myself here. I host it in the cloud because of the volume of traffic it receives. Uh so sometimes that's a considering factor on there. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it, it just well, you weigh it all out. And yes, you should have servers wherever they belong. Um, and someone asked this question. This is another good point, because it's not a video I've done yet. But it's a video that I've been wanting to do is I'm trying to make it concise. Essentially, the question comes in of can I spin up my own Linode server to hide my public IP address? Um, Not just as a VPN, which I've done VPN videos and you can use WireGuard, but as a termination point so I can run services locally, but they're bridged. Yes, there's ways to do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm trying to make it a more concise video of how to basically tunnel a service very simply. Um, And this can be done with PFSense by building an IPSec VPN and building routes back. Uh, It's something that can be done. It's something that's asked about, but it's not. It's not like one, two, three steps. It's more like one, two, 300, (laughs) maybe not that many, but there's a lot more steps uh, involved in setting up. But yeah, that's another good use case for it where you want to keep your public IP exposure to a minimum. So uh, it's hard for people to see where you are or directly get at your services, but then you filter them through. And, uh, you know, Wendell actually talked about that when he was on where you could put your web proxy on a Linode server and then filter back from the Linode server and make the connection back to you. Now, as far as anyone seeing, they only ever get to see the public server, but the server is now making a call back after it's filtered through the uh, proxy to whatever service you want to offer that maybe you host at home. Because while it's, inexpensive to have bandwidth in the cloud it is expensive to have storage in the cloud storage it racks up really yes. quick when it comes oh, uh, especially yeah. uh, you want to serve a bunch of data to someone um, and stream it back to them yeah you're going to find that if you wanted to keep two or three hundred terabytes in the cloud that has a pretty heavy recurring expense that you're not going to see when you have it locally so there's a good use case for it especially that where you keep your uh, data local, maybe the web application that they interface with to get to the data, but then the call procedurally goes backwards, so to speak, into your data and pulls it. But then the person using the service only sees your public IP. I mean, this is all stuff you set up. It's get uh, yep. some write-ups in level one techs. If you look for uh, how to proxy, uh, if you look at web proxies on the level one tech forums, you'll find some solid uh, write-ups. There are Wendell does not have a video on how to do this or anything right now, so.
1: One one another way you could do it too is you could have like an nginx proxy running on a node and then you have dynamic dns you know in your home network and then you could actually do a proxy from you know with virtual host right to the the uh, c name or the dynamic dns name that you have and then you just get it all set up the way you like it it's working you take an image of it of course make it secure but if anything ever happens delete it Just restore the image, create a new one, find out why it got hacked and then just, um, you know, set it back up again. But um, with the proper security, um, you could actually just do a a straight NGINX proxy to your um, home network that way as well. And you could choose in the config not to actually have the other IPs shown where it's only showing the IP of that Linode. That's another way you could do it. There's so many different ways you could do it. I think that's probably the simplest way. And then when you get into, like you said, you know, VPN, IPsec and all that, then, of course, the complexity goes up from there. Um, or you could even just see if you can leverage something like zero tier to bridge your, um, home network in your Linode and then just put a proxy in front of that. Um, there's all kinds of cool things you could probably do.
0: Yeah. It's definitely a fun one on there. Like I said, Wendell's write-ups, he's got like the tutorial, uh, written out inside the forums over there at level one. Uh. Ray Orsini is a friend of mine. He runs a rarely large voice company, OIT VoIP, and he'd like to know opinions on centralized methods for management and authorization. This is a tricky one because the (laughs) uh, simple answer is slap some uh, Active Directory on top of things. And the reason that comes up a lot in the corporate environments is because Active Directory is... Built into so many things. You even take uh, something like TrueNAS, and you can tie it to an AD server to authenticate all of your users. And because so many users are using Windows, that's usually what's tying all those servers. But let's get away from that idea for a minute yeah. and talk about some other options. And Jay had a couple ideas he wanted to talk about on this.
1: Yeah. So at first, it's probably not going to sound like the best solution, but I, I promise you, this works. Like Ansible or you know Puppet Chef, whatever you're using, I really do feel like that's one of the best ways to do it. Um, now you can have centralized login with LDAP if you don't want to put that in something like Ansible. Um there's solutions like 389 directory server. I think there's I think it's called Free IPA if I remember correctly. Free, a yep, free IPA,
0: which is um yep. a kind of a complete I think you can get it as a turnkey uh system.
1: Yep. So I mean if you want, I mean, for the authentication piece, you could have that. Or you could just have the users being created by your um automation solution, that's also an option as well but with with you know something like ansible you have templates you can set up and variables per machine you could essentially recreate the same feature set of group policy within ansible like on my end i have everything set up by ansible i've seen group policy in enterprise companies where it'll change the wallpapers or the company wallpaper it, it might change the theme it'll de- declare which icons are on the desktop which programs are installed ansible can do all of that um, on my end, it actually sets the wallpaper on my GNOME desktop, literally. It'll set the theme, it'll set my keyboard shortcuts, all the apps that I have installed, um, pretty much hands-off, and it does everything. So at that point, your um, automation solution can become your group policy. And you could also include the users in there, like I mentioned, or you could just get that out of version control and out of the uh, automation solution and use something like free IPA or 389 directory server, roll your own LDAP server if you want to, if you really want to get that segregated. Because one side effect of having something like Ansible create accounts for you is that every machine is going to have every account. If you have like 30 users, then your login screen to your Linux desktop is going to show like 30 different accounts. So if that's not what you want, um, you could take that out of Ansible, do LDAP, but then all the other things like the uh, G, I think it's called Gconf with um, Dconf or Gconf with, with Gnome, the Gnome desktop. And also the Mate desktop supports this as well. It's pretty much the same as the Windows registry where you have a key value pair. So you can set the wallpaper, the keyboard shortcuts, um, how many pixels tall the panels are. We could really go down and and customize a lot of stuff. So I think in my opinion, the best we have is the combination of LDAP and um, automation And that might kind of sound like a hacky way of doing it, but it's really not because it's doing the same things. And then you also benefit from having all of your config in a private Git repository so you can see the code. And it's a lot easier if you have a colleague that wants to help you out um, with the configuration. They could get in there, put a pull request in, and then it becomes more of a collaborative effort. But if you don't want it to be a collaborative effort, you just keep the repository to yourself and then no one else ever sees it. So that's how I would do it.
0: Yeah. And... Like I said, there's a couple different methodologies, and I'll actually come back to what I said active directory in the beginning. And one of the reasons it's popular, even Pop OS and Ubuntu have uh, I well, I don't know if Pop OS does, but I know Ubuntu does, which probably means Pop OS does, has support for Active yeah. Directory. You actually yep. actually have um, in is it is it version anything after version 21? Is it Jay that has like
1: part yeah. of the setup process? It was the, yeah, it would have been. It would, it would have been, actually, I think it would be 2010 because it was the one release after the last LTS release. And that was the initial support. And then they kind of built it in more with each version because I think they're really trying to get this ready for um, Ubuntu 2204 LTS, if I'm not mistaken. They want to make this like, I think they might consider it experimental. I don't remember. Um, but either way, I think they want it to be completely solid for that. And now right in the installer, when you install a newer version of Ubuntu you can actually enroll it in the Active Directory, you know, right from the installer. So if that's something that you want to do, you can absolutely do that because it's right in the installer. So that's pretty cool. And in Pop OS, I'm pretty sure they have it. It's like I said, it's based on Ubuntu. So I mean, just install the package, you know, and yeah. you're pretty much done. So yeah, you could absolutely do that. And that's a I think Fedora also Supports that too. So there's there's a number of these that support Active Directory.
0: Yeah, and it's one of the reasons Active Directory remains the primary and most popular system for uh, management. Uh, side note: Synology is actually working on some directory services. They want to create some competing products because there's obviously some uh, cost burden involved if you either have to run uh you know some type of license AD server on site, or you have to tie it to some of the Azure AD, which has a recurring cost. Um, so yeah, there's there are Definitely a, a market demand for alternative, but it's it's hard to deal with the juggernaut who has integrated into everything. So uh, that's a discussion right. that won't be solved today.
1: <laughs> we,
0: we threw out a few ideas out there, um, but you'll you really comes down to. And an easy example for me working in the business world is some of our clients are line of business applications. They just don't have authentication methods besides Active Directory, so there's not really an option. They that's how they expect they expect it to be installed in that type of environment. They use Active Directory as their authentication model, so you don't really get a choice. This is how yeah. the
1: product works. Um, I would say too, though, um, if if any any person or a group of people want to tackle the problem of group policy, it's not going to be hard to do. I mean, yeah, it's going to be some work, but if you think about it, we already have Gconf and GNOME and Mate supports that too. So we already have a back-end system that we can actually interact with to set pretty much every setting on the computer. And if somebody just simply wrote a front-end to the gconf database of settings, um, the back-end's already done. So if somebody wants to tackle this, they don't even have to develop the back-end, it's already there. They just need to develop a front-end that can hook into it, maybe create some drop-downs and checkboxes and things like that so you could just control it the same way you can with you know, group policy, just drill down through the settings, change with the settings or you know what what they are supposed to be and then have a way of just you know rolling that out which could be as simple as you know an export import it just imports the settings into the target machine and you're done so if someone wants to tackle that or a group of people want to tackle that the back end's there and if you build the front end i mean you're already pretty much 50% there already so yep. if someone wants to tackle that i encourage someone or some people to uh start a project on github and you know let us know if you do that yeah let us know <laughs> if you do that Um, let's address the chat now as we ran through all the questions
0: and the thing I see bouncing around in the chat a lot right now is MikroTik. And uh, someone can argue with me that it's not said that way. Google it and you'll find someone from MikroTik saying it that way. Anyways, um, the MikroTik. I like their Switches. I like specifically their Switch OS. I'm not a big fan of their router OS. Uh, It is fairly convoluted, complicated, so I have not taken the time to learn it. Those of you, even the people who are experts at it, always tell me, yeah, you just take the time to learn it, Tom. It'll save you money because it's a cheap device. But, oh, yeah, by the way, it's really complicated and convoluted to configure with documentation that has a lot of as, as someone put it best there's a lot of weird commands you have to copy and paste in but no one tells you why those commands are needed to make something work i don't really care for uh, systems like that um it, it It's cool because maybe I can save a few dollars so I can get a very fast router for a low price. But if that comes at the expense of not knowing how to configure it, this is where there's a real problem. And one of the best routers you can always use is the one you know how to set up securely. And Mm -hmm. if you're uh, not kind of getting where I'm coming from here, look up the Maris botnet. It is now one of the largest botnets in history and being used for not good things. Uh, It is also made up of Mikrotik routers. That were at some point in time misconfigured or insecure or due to flaws in them. But either way, they're still infected. And it will, one thing this proved to me, if you do any reading on the Mirror Spotnet, and yes, it was even something that was covered on the last episode of Security Now, is uh, Steve Gibson, like, this is big this is huge. By the way, it's all Beaker Tick routers. And uh, at least the vast majority, of, I think almost all of it is in that particular botnet. This is a problem. Uh, what people saved, they've now created the monster that we deal with in commercial IT of how do we deal with DDoS attacks and botnets. Obviously, this is a hot topic in in the whole month of September, there's been numerous places. Part of New Zealand itself was knocked offline by a DDoS attack. So with that type of behavior going on, how do they get access to this? What's a bunch of broken devices connected to the internet that are infected? And when you talk about something that, is very powerful, which is the micro They do come with a lot of uh, processing power. And then if it's not configured properly, uh, did the cost savings really make it worth having another nefarious tool out there that people are using uh, to DDoS? I stay with, Um, tools that I know very well. I do explore other tools. I'm not here to be a monoculture of a single device, but we really like the Untangle firewalls. We really like the PFSense firewalls. We know them well. We deploy many of them. Uh, Both of these companies have been Good projects with great Documentation that's easy to follow For those of you who learn and I have also Taken the time to create many tutorial videos on both Of these products so you can easily learn it if you don't Feel like doing the RTFM Which by the way I've had people tell me Your video is too long and I just reply I'm like I'm just reading the documentation turning to a video If you think my video is too long read the documentation It is freely available <laughs> So yeah. um, Nonetheless that's why we kind of stay in the realm Of those particular firewalls I don't have any particular dislike for. Them. And I know in the WISP market, I've met people who are very skilled at configuring them. And the WISP uh, providing that market is very uh, low margin. So you're looking for things you can deploy uh, to save you money. I get it. I get why they're used there. And it's not that I think they shouldn't be. Um, but I'm not going to take the time to learn the Mikrotik Tick router mm-hmm. language. But I did take the time yep. to look and see the Switch OS language, which I said was simple enough and still somewhat complex depending on your level of knowledge of switch but i found it intuitive enough to use it i tried using router a couple times i said this isn't intuitive this is confusing why did someone design the menus like this and then someone's like you just have to learn the command line and i'm like why is the command line not work the way i think it should all right never
1: mind i'm done (laughs) i think the main problem i think this is probably the same for you is that if i was going to review a switch or a router I feel like the only way that I'm going to have a um, you know, really good opinion is if I replace my current switching router with the one that I'm reviewing. And that's a massive amount of work for a video. I mean, that would take me probably weeks to figure out how to do the same configuration just for one video. So when it comes to people that might complain about the monoculture, you only talk about X, you only talk about Y. This stuff is really, really hard. I mean, I could do a quick review and give my thoughts on it, but I feel like I'm Being a little disingenuous there, because unless I'm giving it a full workout, then how do I give you guys my opinion on it? And the only way to give it a full workout is to replace my current stuff with the stuff I'm reviewing. And that's easy with the Linux distro. That's not as easy with switches and routers and and all this gear. I mean, that's a, a, a huge amount of work.
0: Yeah. And I, my position on my reviews of things like uh, both on Tangle and Sense are the fact that we have these actively deployed at clients. We actively yep. do consulting on these devices as part of integrations into people's networks. So it comes from a place of experience, not just, hey, look, I tested it and uh, it, I set it up and I showed you how to do a port forward and I don't know if that's it. You know, these are physically deployed, actively managed by uh, not just me, but my company itself and my team here. Yep. So. Um, someone asked a question that I, i I think there's always a misconception about this. Someone says, is there a way I can just point sync thing at a cloud provider and back it up. And the answer is technically no, because there's not like sync thing is designed to be a cloud backup service, but there are features of sync thing, such as if you wanted to keep a copy of your data in the cloud, but then encrypt that data. It does support encrypted, essentially blind servers that can mm-hmm. have an encrypted, uh, synchronized copy of that data. So there's ways you can build your own, but there's not any company that offers it as a service that I'm aware of. Um, And I don't think there will be, I don't know if there's enough market demand to create blind servers under, especially because if you, once you learn and take the time to learn sync thing, um, it's really easy to set up. Uh, you can set up a Linode sync thing in a couple of minutes, throw a firewall, only open the ports that you need open for sync thing, which are very minimal, or only open them to uh, your IP space. So there's a minimal uh, potential of attack. And uh, yeah, you, you can set up your own blind server in the cloud. Now, the downside is storage in the cloud, as we mentioned earlier, can be a little bit pricey, but depending on how much you need to sync and have it off site, it, it can work. Um, it's definitely yep. an option out there.
1: I think it's important to understand that SyncThing is a sync utility, not a drive utility. Right. So if you look at Google Drive, I mean, you could go right into your browser. You can interact with your files, save your files. Um, For that, you're kind of looking at more of a next cloud solution because it gives you that. It gives you the ability to point and click in a browser to access your files. It also gives you the ability to sync. Sync SyncThing, its job is to get or actually to sync data from point A to point B, C, D, E, or however many points you have. So... That's what SyncThing does. Now, technically, you could just, you know, share out an NFS share that SyncThing is maintaining and kind of create that. But it's not, but SyncThing itself isn't meant to be that. It's meant to synchronize. You're looking at Nextcloud for something like that. If you really want the Google Drive and um office or you know online office editing solution, that's gonna be Nextcloud for that kind of thing. Um, Another thing that
0: came up a little bit, and I don't know if you've covered this before, Jay, but they asked not about SSH keys, but about using SSH certificates. Um, First, I always suggest reading Michael Lucas's book on SSH. uh, But, Jay, have you done a video on SSH, not key management, but certificate management?
1: I have not. Not yet. Um, That might happen, though, because one of the videos that I added to my list was SSH key management, something I've been wanting to do for a time And I kind of think if I I cover SSH certificates, then it would naturally happen after the SSH key management video happens. So I'll just look at, again, the demand, if enough people want this, after I do the SSH key video, um, which which I did just do an SSH key video, but the one I'm going to do is about managing multiple keys for multiple servers and kind of helping people understand how to manage that. And then maybe certificates will happen after. That's a possibility. Yeah, so there's not a video on it right now. I believe
0: it is covered uh, in Michael Lucas's book though, on SSH. It, it, uh, it's Michael Lucas, SSH mastery. Uh, it is a good book to give you a good deep dive into uh, all things SSH and some clever things that he's come up with. Uh, I think there's that. I, I could go through that book. There's something about um, putting key, putting the keys in DNS text records so you can pull them to other servers. He's got some tricks in there, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Oh, yes. it's
1: so amazing. Yeah. There's just some clever
0: stuff. Uh, it, it's a well-written book because Michael Lucas is a pretty awesome author when it comes to technical documentation uh, at Lawrence systems. Are you still use messing with home assistant with Zigbee Z wave uh, devices? And yes, uh, I still turn my studio lights on and off and we plan to add more, but I got sidetracked, but my staff has added more things. Uh, I haven't, they've been playing with it. They've got NFC attached to it. Uh, my staff sometimes like they'll play with things and keep it, building on it. And then I got to go, what'd you guys do with this? There's new things on here. Uh, I'm still using Z-Wave. Uh, that seemed to anger people or based on the comments because um, it's not as much of an open standard, but it is easy to find devices for it. But maybe we'll do um, a Zigbee one as well. I don't know. Either way, yep. my goal is going to be to cover Home Assistant. Jay has some upcoming things he's going to be doing with Home yep. Assistant. And obviously, we also did Mycroft recently in a previous episode. So, oh, Jay's holding a box. Yeah, um, people
1: can't, People that are listening via the you know podcast um, solutions, they can't see this, but I'm holding up a box right now. And inside this box, I have not even opened it. I mean, I took a peek, but I didn't actually open the main component here. This is the Home Assistant Blue inside, the actual hardware device that Home Assistant makes available that I'm going to be reviewing at some point. I don't know when it's going to happen. It could be anywhere from a week to a month from now because my backlog is huge, but I'm going to definitely try to review this. And um, and maybe this will be a collaboration effort with, with Tom and I to kind of check this thing out. I can't wait to dive in.
0: Yeah. So I, I, and actually, my wife's bugging me because um, we don't have uh, the normal IoT devices at my house. My house is devoid of most technical things. So people ask what I'm running at home. I'm like, nothing. Like I'm not joking, guys. (laughs) But, uh, the, uh, I, yeah. my wife wants to put, she would like those things and I won't install ones by the, uh, common cloud provider. So I will probably end up putting a home assistant at home. So there'll, there'll be at least be some, and it'll, it'll be, I'll have my wife do the review on that one. Cause she's more excited about it than me. I'm like, I, I'm fine with getting up to move light switches, but she apparently thinks, you know, but then again, I say that. And then I, I, I just like that. I got a button, uh, that turns on my whole studio around me, which is kind of cool. So, yeah. It's there's more videos coming on it, and we're definitely Absolutely. tinkering with it still.
1: Absolutely. And there might even be some Mycroft connections on my channel with Home Assistant too coming. Um of one of the
0: so because of another project um that had to do with making your own Wii things here. It's nothing I ever did on a video. My there's a lot of goofy things that go on that my staff does here. Uh once in a while I'll take a picture of it and randomly post on Twitter, but uh they have little peel and stick NFC tags um that they bought a lot of and novel idea one of them had because I I kept forgetting to turn the light off before I turned my computer off and I didn't have the Home Assistant app on my phone. Uh, This might be part of the video where they put NFC stickers on the lamps. And what you do is you tap your phone to the lamp. And when you have the app on there, it tells the app to trigger an action, like turn that lamp on or off. So instead of actually going to the app and doing it, they wave their phone by the lamp. Now, this is coming full circle because you're you're probably asking, well, if they're at the lamp, can't they just hit the light switch? Probably, but it isn't near as cool. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it's not Star Trek-level stuff. Yeah, um, it doesn't
0: have the cool factor of yeah. waving your waving your phone over a lamp to turn it on. I mean, we're back to the light switch all again, but I don't know. That's still kind of cool. If you that just is, put an cool, NFC yeah. sticker on each thing that you want to turn on, and you just touch it with your phone, and it turns each thing on. And then someone will point out, that's the dumbest thing ever. You could just hit the switch. I know, but...
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, why not? I mean, it, the coolness factor is definitely a part of some of this. Yeah, um, so... That's... I saw a couple of things in the in there I wanted in the um, live stream I wanted to address really quick. Um, sure. One person asked, is there an alternative to VNC for remote desktop? And I wanted to mention X2Go. Yep, That's something Tom and I have used. You could use it to get a full desktop session or even just share a single app and have it show up on your computer as if it's running locally, even though it's actually running on a remote server. I did a video on that. That's on the channel. <clears throat> and then another person asked about, Ansible, is is there a Gconf model or module? There is actually, it's called DCONF, D-C-O-N-F. That's what I use. And I have a whole Ansible series. And I also have an entire video that goes over that, how I configure my desktop. It's um, kind of like a high level look because I mean, this is something I've worked on for five years. There's no way I can cover it in one video, but I'll give you guys like the general gist of how I do it in that video. You'll see some example code. And I also have a um, older version of my Ansible config that's sanitized and put up on GitHub. So if you go through there, the workstation role, and check out the, I think it's under the GNOME folder. You should see some configuration there in Ansible for how to do things. And it's really amazing to watch when I execute the script. You'll literally see your wallpaper fade out and the new pa- wallpaper fade in right before your eyes. It's like you actually watch your desktop like change, as if you're like clicking and and you know changing things, but you're, you know, hands-free, you're not even touching the keyboard and you just watch as your um, desktop becomes what you want it to be, how you've uh, defined it. So I have sample code out there and that video, if someone wants to uh, try to tackle that.
0: Yeah, that's been on my to-do list for a while because I realized I may need to reload my desktop for a couple of reasons. Uh, that'll, if I recover that, my my desktop has been in place upgraded for years and i have some config things that are goofed that i should fix jay fixed one of them uh but i get an error message i forgot to tell you because i I, if you remember sshing into my system to expand my lvm partition because i goofed that Mm -hmm. up i am not good at lvm turns out jay's good at lvm so we actually bounce off each other and help each other with ideas um but Ever since then, there's been this weird little quirk that comes up, but well, that's a whole nother show topic. But yep. <laughs> there's uh, definitely some ways to, and once I do it, maybe I'll, I'll touch on the topic as well, because uh, being able to deploy things the way Jay does is really slick. I, I'm jealous, so I'm not going to lie. Watch that video he's done on it to get it get an idea. I've watched it in person. He's made a video on it so you can watch it too. So <laughs> um, yep. am I planning a release on the TP? Uh, More TP Link Omada videos, not really. I didn't see the demand for that. Uh, I the problem I had, and a lot of people were very right about this is uh, with TP Link Omada, um, TP Link no one seems to have the confidence that they're committed to their product as well. So it becomes confusion, and we even—I've addressed in that video the marketing confusion of when I was looking at of what did or didn't work. There was a lot of little stuff, and I also realized they just copied Unify. They didn't try to innovate on the platform in any meaningful way. Now maybe if they do something that's interesting, but uh, there wasn't anything about the company that made me go, "Wow, this is so fantastic!" Uh, it seemed like they just cloned Unify. There's people who are just angry at unify and just want an alternative so that's why they want to uh use tp link Omada. then have at it because you're angry at a firmware you're angry at uh something they did i I don't know uh we are still using unify here so i don't really spend a lot of time with Omada. my review was you know i set it all up in my home and built it out and used it for a while before i did the review but i don't plan to deploy it at clients i don't have the long-term confidence uh in that particular product to say oh yeah this is going to be a Going forward, this is the best product for this. So um, I don't, I don't know what more I can do. It looks like, matter of fact, uh, one of my staff members showed because he set it up so quick. He goes, huh, you don't really need to do a video, Tom. Just tell him it's like Unify, but it says TP-Link. And like even the pull downs for VLANs and everything are pretty much the same. <laughs> so wow. there's uh, I, I, you I did a side-by-side comparison, and it's kind of like crazy when you look at it like, wow, they just copied the interface. Like, yeah, a whole lot. Even the mm-hmm. nomenclature and everything is so similar. If you watch any of the Unify videos, you're not really lost uh, in TP-Link. I mean, that, at least that part was intuitive. Um, I, I would say the learning curve, if you're going to go between them, is really small. But the value proposition of how Unify actually spends a long time supporting their products. Their products' end of life is quite a few years later. Um you know, in terms of their networking gear, I'm not going to get into the uh, someone pointing out. Well, they didn't do a good job of. Uh, I'm, they made me mad with unified video. I'm like, okay, so you're going to switch your networking gear out that works well because the same company uh, made poor choices on how they deployed video gear. I. Fail to see the logic in it. Ubiquity is a huge company. Uh, and TP Link certainly has a series of products, and not every one of them may be what you like. So I don't know. It becomes a weird uh, discussion. And if I can't see enough value in doing it, I end up not doing a lot of deeper videos on it. So yeah. that's how I feel. I did the video on it, I showed how to set it up and how to use it. Run with that. I don't see anything wrong. Uh, Cody from Mac Telecom Networks has a couple of videos where he covers VLANs. And if you watch that video, you'll say, oh, it's a lot like on Unify, but he's covered it in a video. So uh, there are tutorials out there um, for that stuff.
1: Uh, is there anything else? <laughs> I'm hoping I'm not missing anything really cool. I mean, there's a lot of great questions there, um, but uh, I haven't seen anything else on my end. Are we going to talk about disaster recovery? Uh, I think we have. We've talked about
0: cloning things and backing them up. Um, So there's plenty. There's episodes we've covered that. Uh, If you go back to like our Synology episode, Synology has an entire uh, automated backup system with a bare metal restore option. So you just kind of pick which one you think works for you. But we did talk about Clonezilla as well. If you're looking uh, for something to clone servers in general or workstations in general.
1: I think the holy grail is when you can actually delete a VM. And it gets recreated automatically, you know, like everything just comes back and resurrects itself with auto healing. I mean, that's the Holy grail, let's be honest, but it takes a little bit of time to get there though. Yeah, it does.
0: Um, I think that's about it. Someone asked what is, because I'm looking it up, I'm going to say I never hit it. So uh, stable bit drive pool, never heard of it before. I just Googled it. Is it open source? There's my first question I'll have. Uh. No, yes, buy. I don't see anything about it being open source. It's so not likely I'll look at this. It's some cloud pool disk. Nope, never heard of it. Don't have a use case for it. Um, it's also not open source. Uh, when we're looking at products as a whole, not that... Every I wish everything was open source, but I live in a real world where some things are not. And uh, I do lean towards, before I look at a project, uh, looking to see if it's open source. If there's no other projects in that category of uh, use case of thing I need, then I can look at something like a closed source thing. I mentioned Synology Photos. Synology Photos is really solid. Synology Photos is also closed source, but does have nice apps and things like that at the Time and that time being right now, September of 2021. I haven't found an open source solution that was as turnkey easy to use as analogy photos. Doesn't mean one doesn't exist, it means I'm not aware of it. Uh, that's why I use it. So that's where I'm at with a lot of it. So um, have I looked at NetGate Tensor? Not on my uh to do list right now. It's a cool product, I just don't use it. We don't have it actively deployed. We had a couple of quotes from people looking at it. Um but never, it never got, uh, never seen the light of day. So, <laughs> uh, is there any? I think a couple more questions. How much more time do you have, James? Couple more minutes. Um, I,
1: I have a little bit more time. So, I had one person ask me about, um, you know, the best way to get into the field and. I think this is one of those things that's best served in videos that I plan on doing. I just don't know when I'm going to start doing them because I already have like probably 10 videos I need to edit or more. Um, but I do plan on doing more like vlog content every now and then about getting into the IT field. But specifically, you know, this individual's asking about certs and which one's the best. That's kind of, you know, being on the other end of the hiring process as the person interviewing people and also working with other managers that, that hire people. There is no one answer. And the reason why this question keeps coming up is because if there was one answer, then there wouldn't be a question, right? Um, The problem is it really depends on the hiring manager. I mean, you could have, I mean, when it comes to a degree or not, you could have a hiring manager that thinks you must have a degree and it has to be from a prestigious college. You have another manager that might not care at all. They just want to know that you could do the job. You have some that like certs. They want you to have one. And you have other hiring managers that hate certs because they probably had some people apply to the job that just memorized the questions and weren't really good at the job. So it really depends on who, you know, where you're interviewing. I would actually phrase it more around when it comes to certs, what do you want to learn? Because you don't know what kind of hiring manager you're going to end up talking to, but at the very least, if Red Hat interests you and that makes you happy to learn it, then do it for that reason. Because when you actually study for a cert, you're going to learn a lot more. Um, when it comes to Linux Plus, that's vendor neutral. That cert is pretty cool, too. Um, you know, I, I, I it expired because it, I didn't renew it, but I did go through the process and got it a long time ago. And it was a pretty decent test, actually. So you'll learn a lot there, too. But I never went into it thinking like some of these places tell you, if you get a cert, you're going to have $20,000 more a year in earnings and all that. It's not its not really true. It's not going to give you a promotion. It's just something to add to your portfolio. But it's your portfolio in general that really makes or breaks the career. I, um, I actually tell people um, what's more important is having the portfolio and GitHub is a portfolio. So if you're yep. learning something and you're taking notes and you're writing scripts Put that stuff in your your GitHub page and make sure that the hiring manager knows where that is, because the per- person that's you know potentially going to hire you will look at your scripts and the things that you've done. And it's not necessarily like you want to have the best scripts that the person has ever seen. More often than not, they're going to look at okay, what is this individual doing with their skill set oh, I see they're writing a bash script here. They're doing a Python script here. So obviously this person is trying to learn more than one thing. They seem to be passionate about it. So it teaches you Git. It also um, helps you um, get the word out about what you're able to do. Um, even better if you contribute to someone else's projects, because you know that shows team that you're a good team member there. You, you can collaborate really well which you're looking for that. I think all of that, plus the certs, plus everything else you could put in your portfolio, the better. So it's just, more or less, just having as much in your portfolio as you can. And certs themselves are just basically a learning process, and they help you learn. I wouldn't go into a cert expecting a particular thing, because again, it depends on the hiring manager. But at the end of the day, it's what does the certificate have value when it comes to you? If it has value to you, go ahead and do it. If you think Red Hat's fun, absolutely, you're going to love it.
0: Yeah, and it's uh, it's a way for a little bit of gatekeeping because they don't want the floodgates open. Of oh, I know computers. And right. hiring managers have to deal with, what do you actually know? You know, computers, cool, but we need someone who knows this. And obviously writing it on a resume and actually knowing it is not something simple for a hiring manager uh, to fill the position. So they want you to say, all right, you've got some type of accredited cert. Uh, one, you it shows you put the effort to do it. Um, so that's one of the reasons they may have it on there. Matter of fact, uh, there's an engineering company and I've talked to one of their hiring managers. He had the funniest answer. He wanted uh, people a minimum of a two-year Uh, degree, but he preferred four. And I said, really? I said, the job doesn't really seem to need that. He goes, oh, no, I need to know that they have taken the time to write an essay about something turn in a paper about something he goes the number of people i currently employ that can't quite form full english sentences but are actually brilliant network engineers he goes it's kind of a problem he goes that he goes their hold back is not their technical acumen but their lack of articulate nature of being able to convey things so sometimes that i, I kind of was like okay that I, I kind of get why they're doing that because uh, that is something i've watched hold people back you know having a long career in tech and knowing a lot of people in the industry a year ability to communicate with people in general and in a non-technical sense, but be yes. able to communicate your problem, being able to communicate it to your higher ups to make sure they understand the problem and hand you the resources you need to get something accomplished. Um, that can be a challenge. And if you don't have some of those soft skills uh, you can, present with all the ccna stuff you want uh, that may get your foot in the door but those are something to keep in mind as well that you communicate Mm -hmm. well so it's kind of a a full package and it's hard uh because boy i've met a lot of people that uh didn't make the cut Uh, Me being a technical person, and I do the hiring here, uh, I understand what questions to ask. But if you're someone less technical, it's really easy to get bamboozled. And uh, I've I've had a few friends that just put things on resumes when they were younger to try to get the job. And they actually were able to float through for a little while before getting discovered that they knew the least there. (laughs)
1: Yeah, it doesn't plan. Yeah, it'll get you eventually. And another thing, it's not a good
0: thing. So yeah, that's why this is the short answer or long answer of why certificates might still be necessary to uh, get into the marketplace.
1: (laughs) Yeah, another thing I want to mention too is is just not to get discouraged if you apply to a job and you don't even get a call. Like you, they just don't even you know call you. Um, The situation often is that you have a hiring manager that you know maybe the person that manages the IT team. They let's just say they want Ansible, but they're OK if you don't know it, because if you were to interview for the job and say, well, I'm willing to learn Ansible. And if you show the passion, they're willing to let you slide on the fact that you don't have that item on your list. On the other hand, though, at the very beginning, you have a you know, person in HR, maybe an admin or something that's getting all these resumes and maybe he or she gets like two or 300 resumes. And then that person might thin down the resumes by, oh, that person doesn't have Ansible. I'm going to delete that one. This person doesn't, doesn't have this. I'm going to delete that one just to get it down to a manageable chunk of resumes. Now, the entire time, the hiring manager might not care at all if you don't have these things. But then the person at the very beginning, they have to kind of start screening these things to make it more manageable. So whether or not you get a call could just come down to you, you just got screened. It's not that you couldn't have done the job. And the hiring manager probably would have hired you, but it is what it is. You know, fate isn't on your side. You just didn't get past the screener. And unfortunately, that's a gamble that everyone plays when they apply for a job. Yep. All right. Ooh, we went a little long on this one, but I think it was worth it. Thank you for
0: everyone bringing the Q and A's to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, hit us up on the Twitter. Um, hit us up on the feedback form is a great place because we always answer the feedback form place. We uh, care about the people that take the time to fill that out and uh, ask those questions. We read through them and uh, save them up for these Q and A episodes. So absolutely. um Thank you all for joining us. It was definitely a fun episode and Mm -hmm. uh, we'll see you next time next week. We've been trying to keep it consistent that we do this 11 o'clock thing and uh, we're pretty good while sticking to it. B and Jay have got this planned out pretty well. So thanks again for joining us. Thanks for for sponsoring and talk to you next time. Leave us some feedback so we can do some more Q and A. We have fun with this. Thanks. Yep. Thank you guys.